Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. This is episode 58. And today we're interviewing Belinda Fetke. Now you've met Belinda, haven't you, Louise? I have. I've met her a couple of times at um, various uh, keto conferences uh, at Low Carb Breckenridge and also in Australia. Excellent. And while we're talking about this, because you've just shown me a picture of you, group of you, keto dudes, um, with Belinda and Gary. And I just thought I'd mention to the listeners that every week we do a newsletter and we talk about what's going on in our worlds and how we're doing with keto and low carb and we interview we introduce the guest. So if anybody was interested in the newsletter, then they can just email us and we'll add them to the newsletter list. And the newsletter this week um, will actually have that picture from um, low carb Breckenridge, so which includes obviously you were sort of being able to spot spot the famous faces with Richard and Carl and Dave Feldman, Kim Howerton, Carolyn Cartier, uh, Brenda uh, Zorn is also in, yep. is in there, uh, as well as um, Belinda and Gary. Yeah, it was a really nice photo, really nice photo. Oh, and not forgetting Terry Lance as well. Oh, yeah. So she was there as well. Yep, she was there in the, in the front. We were staying in a, a house up in Breckenridge, which is in the, in the ski resort, and that's where Gary was actually presenting at the at the conference. So it was really great to have um, not only myself and Andrew, but Richard, um, and we had the Fetkies there for dinner. So we had a little sort of enclave of Aussies um, having um, some delicious food that was cooked, obviously, by the two keto dudes, as well as Kim and myself and, and Brenda as well. So, yeah, it was a really lovely way to share a meal with um, some very famous Aussies. Yeah. So was that the time, was that the same time when you were with Zoe and Andy Harkham? That was when the same conference that I bumped into Zoe in the ladies' toilets. <laughs> yeah. Great. So let's talk about Belinda because that's what we're here for, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So, and that's actually a really good um, opportunity to sort of have a, you know, a sense of, how Belinda came into the, the keto sphere, you know, obviously with, with Gary, obviously Gary being a orthopedic surgeon. So Belinda really came to the forefront in support of Gary at a very difficult time as he was being investigated with, through Australia's uh, regulatory authority, similar to the UK's British Medical Council. So 
um, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulatory Authority, APRA, was investigating him. But it was really surprising how she, woman, you know, really found her own voice and it was absolutely wonderful that she, in her advocacy role, taking the spotlight, has really made a name for herself. Yeah, and I think the listeners are really going to enjoy listening to Belinda because I remember when I first heard her talk about it, I was just, oh my God, I did not realise that. I did not understand that. And and so nowadays when I'm working with people, I nearly always talk about um, the Kelloggs and how that came about and them being Seventh-day Adventists because I think it's so important to understand where we got that education from. So, yeah, I think, you know, she has brought attention to the food politics, the history, um, and we were talking earlier about the corporate interests in health and the medical info and training. You know, a lot of doctors are trained by these companies. And that's really where her advocacy and her role has brought to light a lot of these particular interests. So I think that that's so wonderful. So I can't wait, you know, for the listeners to be able to share um, and, and listen to, to Belinda's story. So Louise, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Belinda? For more than half a century, we've been told to eat a diet in grains and low in saturated fat. And instead of improving health outcomes, the incidence of non-communicable diseases has escalated. Discovering Belinda's husband, orthopaedic surgeon, Dr. Gary Fetke, had been targeted for active defence by the cereal industry in 2014 and subsequently becoming the only medical doctor in the world to be silenced from providing nutritional advice to his patients. People with metabolic disease and the complications of type 2 diabetes requiring debridement and even amputation of their lower limbs was unbelievable. So Belinda began her research into, as we said, the vested interest and the ideology shaping our dietary and health guidelines to clear Gary's name. She began asking why. Why plant-based dietary and health guidelines had become strict rule books? Who was writing them? Who was defending them? Incredibly, she discovered the answers were buried in the pages of history. So let's hear some more from Belinda. Welcome, Belinda, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you, Jackie and Louise. We always start by asking our guests, where in the world are you? I am on the other side of the world to where you are at the moment and down under below Louise. Um, we're in Tasmania, at the very bottom of Australia on a little island. Next stop is Antarctica. Excellent. And is that home? It is. It's been our home for a very long time now, about 30 years, and we just love Tasmania. We used to live in Sydney and Melbourne, but Tassie is definitely home. Excellent. Well, for the for the listeners, one of the great things about Tasmania is obviously its food. And I know that um, Belinda is a very passionate foodie. And so, Belinda, why don't you tell us how you got started on your low-carb journey? Well, our low-carb journey, I guess, is like a lot of other people's low-carb journey, is that you come to it because nothing else is working. You look at the dietary guidelines and they're high carb, low fat, and you go, why am I getting fatter and sicker? And so that was definitely how we came about. Gary 
um, was diagnosed with cancer and in the year 2000. And so over time, he was pre-diabetic. He had um, GERD, just high blood pressure, so many issues with his own health. And he determined to look at low carbohydrate as an as an option. First of all, it was David Gillespie. He's an author here in Australia, and he wrote the book Sweet Poison. And Gary thought, what does a lawyer writing a book know more about sugar than I do as a doctor? So that was the start of ours. And so we came to it via the sugar first reducing sugar and then looked at lower carbohydrate. Gary at first said, you know, as long as it's got no sugar and no polyunsaturated oils, we can eat whatever we want. So there was a lot of carbs still happening for a little while. And then, of course, the light bulb moment when you realize that carbohydrates are simply uh, glucose sugars. And so he was able to come off 10 medications. He was able to reverse his prediabetes, high blood pressure, all of those things, and put his cancer into remission for a very long time simply changing his diet. And as you said, in Tasmania, we're so lucky because we can access beautiful produce that's locally grown, um, pasture-fed animals, pasture-fed eggs. Like we have Mount Roland here and there's chickens all over it. You know, it's just amazing. So we're able to support um, fresh local seasonal food and producers and have have that ability to cook ourselves and I think that's been one that is one of the challenges but also one of the joys of low carbohydrate or keto principles is falling in love with preparing foods again and getting to know where this food's coming from I think I had a quick look at your um eat well which uh, Zoe Harkham calls eat badly plate this morning and you know base your meals on carbohydrates your diet Um, dietary guidelines say it in the UK certainly here in Australia they stress that point and you think why on earth are our dietary guidelines telling us to do this so we eat fresh seasonal local minimally processed as much as practical and as much as possible Um, and we're able to support farmers here in Tassie which is great so how long have you been eating that way how long um So I think Gary started his sugar crusade in about 2011, 2012, definitely. Um, And it took a little while. I did say to him, if he kept going and taking everything out of our pantry, I might leave him. (laughs) More and more (laughs) things were going. But um, I think it's been an amazing experience. And our two daughters have found it incredible way of eating. Our son has adopted mostly but certainly our daughters have found it such a great way to live, to eat, prepare food, to reconnect as well. And our grandchildren are being brought up low-carbohydrate principles. So it's fantastic and they're just thriving. So it's something we can all get involved in and it helps that our son-in-law's parents own a sheep farm. So we we can also access (laughs) beautifully raised lamb. My favourite food. (laughs) My favourite food. <laughs> yeah. And so did you join Gary doing low-carb straight away? Um, or no, did you I, join I, after? Gary certainly started out, and I think in all honesty it probably took me a year to get um, sugar out of my tea. I dropped the carbohydrates pretty quickly with him. Certainly all the polyunsaturated oils went very quickly. I was relieved. I've always been a butter girl, so thank goodness butter came back. Um, but 
the actual sugar took a little bit longer, but then Gary was more on a mission than I was. I didn't have anything pressing um, health-wise, so I followed and supported, but certainly by the year, I can't imagine even putting sugar in my tea anymore. So it's amazing how your taste buds change. And I would say by 2013, we were very much um, uh, house is low carbohydrate keto principles. And when people come, they're amazed by how delicious the food is. And that's how I met Louise. We had a, this amazing feast at Breckenridge um, with the two keto dudes, 2016, I think. And and it is it's such a fantastic way to celebrate with people and to enjoy food and, and feel healthy, feel well, share stories. So, yeah, it's been a great journey. Yeah, it, there's a great picture I'm sure that we'll share with the um, with the listeners. You know, there's um, this gaggle of obviously around <laughs> yeah. the two keto dudes, and you know there was you know Kim Howerton and um, yeah Terry Lance was there as well. So yes. she's been on the podcast as well as Brenda Zorn and um, yeah even Dave Feldman was there at that dinner. He so, was. It was absolutely <laughs> yep. And so, I was listening to, we were listening was, to his first talk. Remember how nervous he was? That's right. <laughs> and he's going over yeah, was, his talk, but yeah, he did really well. And now he's and gone it, on to be a legend. <laughs> yeah, but it's not to say that, um, you know, your contribution as well. So, you know, we can circle back to the fact that this, you know, as, as you were in the United States at that time, it was mm. Gary that was doing the presentations, you know, but. Like I, you know, I love to say that behind every great man is an even better woman. You know, you were busily in the background supporting Gary in his obviously his mission to sort of educate and promote low carb. Well, I think the thing that really struck me was I was watching Gary present. Like first of all, he'd reversed a lot of his health conditions and improved his health dramatically. He was then taking those same simple dietary measures to his patients people with, because he's an orthopedic surgeon here in Tasmania, and he was looking after people with type 2 diabetes complications in his clinic. 20 years ago, he might have seen someone once or twice a year with a diabetic foot complication requiring debridement or potentially an amputation of the lower limb. By 2016, he was seeing someone every single week in his clinic requiring surgery. And he was amputating at least once a month. Like this is just in northern Tasmania. And this is a tsunami of disease. Like it's, it's shocking. And to think that he was amputating something that was, as he worked out, was preventable. Type 2 diabetes is completely preventable using diet. So he went, I've, I've got to talk to my patients about this. And as you know, he was reported to the medical board by a dietitian at his hospital in 2014 for recommending his patient with diabetes complications needing surgery. He recommended that they reduce sugar while they were in hospital because the hospital menu was full of it, full of sugar. It processed carbs. And he said, I really think that if you reduce sugar, we'll be able to control your blood glucose much better and improve your health outcomes. And he was reported by a dietitian. So I watched him improving the health of his patients, taking this message into the community, and people were getting healthy. It was really, really exciting. And I thought, why are the people who are creating the guidelines, why is no one listening? You know, why are the AMA not jumping up and down going, wow, why is the Orthopaedic Association not saying, 
incredible. We can actually improve health. And why isn't our government, because Gary went and had meetings with everybody he possibly could, why is our government not considering how much money can be saved, not only the lives, but actual budget savings? So I watched, I say, I watched Gary and all the low-carb people talk themselves blue in the face about the science. And I thought, I don't think this is about the science. I don't think this is the issue here. So I started researching back in 2014. Firstly, I looked at the expert witness was appointed by APRA. So this is the Australasian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, the medical board of Australia and the Tasmanian board in particular, got this man who was a professor emeritus of nutrition science. Like he was the guru in the South Asia Pacific region. We live in Tasmania. There's 120,000 people in our catchment area. Like we're tiny, we're just a small little place. And they called in the biggest gun in nutrition science to be the expert witness to determine if an orthopedic surgeon could talk about nutrition to his patients. Well, in his defense, Gary learned nutrition. It might not have been called nutrition, but it was anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. He learned all of that in medicine. He learned hmm. all of that for three years. Learned all about the Krebs cycle. He learned all about glucose metabolism. He learned how we need cholesterol to use for our hormones and all sorts of things. And then the next three years of medicine, they taught them how to band-aid sick care. They taught them how to medicate and do surgery and forget all of those basic things they'd learned in the first three years because it was going to make a lot more money. No, they didn't ever said that. But, you know, that's what healthcare has become. It's band-aiding sick care. And so yeah. I looked at this expert witness and I thought, oh, my goodness. I actually reached out to him. I wrote an a really nice email. I said, look, you sound a lot like my husband. You know, Gary's been on this passionate health agenda for a very long time, health crusade. He was one of the first people in Australia to say he wouldn't operate on someone for an elective surgery if they were smoking for six weeks. They had to give up smoking for six weeks because he was looking at all the outcomes that were improved if you did do that. And this man, the Professor Emeritus, of nutrition was also advocating the same thing back at the same time. So I thought, surely this man's going to actually just listen. You know, this is a really important thing that Gary's looking at. He's not just coming out of nowhere. The science is here. The metabolism of fructose was only worked out in 2010 by a guy called Luke Tappy. So all of these things were fairly new and Gary was right there. Anyway, he never replied. I wrote to every single email I could find. So I thought, okay, he must work for the sugar industry. That was my that was my decision. I must work for the sugar industry. So down I went, peering in and in. And amazingly, he, he didn't work for the sugar industry. He worked for the cereal industry. And I uncovered documentation stating that Gary had been targeted by the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum, which was the cereal. So they called themselves hashtag cereal for brekkie. And that was Nestle, Kellogg's, Freedom Foods and Sanitarium, all making cereal. And the reason in these notes that I uncovered was that cereal sales were down and low-carb advocates were contributing to it. Gary was the only medical doctor named on those documents and targeted for active defence. When you look at all the timing of everything, he was reported to the medical board 
not long after, the, C- the then CEO of the Dietitians Association of Australia wrote to Gary's Hospital twice to tell him to make him quiet. Mm-hmm. And he was reported not long after that. And you just go, this was a hit job. <laughs> so that sent me on my research, Louise. Jackie, I just went, the cereal for brekkie came after my husband, the mama bear came out, and now <laughs> I've decided she came out growling. And, and as you say, behind him, I was absolutely frantically researching to try and work out why on earth we couldn't talk about low carb as an option in managing type 2 diabetes when it was so incredibly successful. Yeah, and, and that was six six years ago? Yes, <laughs> nearly. Well, and probably we're, seven and years ago I started. Yeah. And, and we're still fighting the same oh, battle. Still fighting the same battle. But then I think as I did more and more research, I've gone right back into history and that's where the answers are, like right back. But it's this symbiotic relationship between vested interests and religious ideology that I never expected to encounter that have formed this, they've aligned in their messaging on the demonization of saturated animal fats. That's where they've joined, at the hip. And because their messages align there, even though their public health messaging one's intent on minimising the harms of sugar and the other one's intent on promoting the Garden of Eden diet as the God-appointed diet for man. You think, these these don't match up, but actually they do, and they've intertwined over and over again over the last 50, 60 years, if not even further back, but at least that long, and have created the plant-biased dietary and health guidelines we look at now. Yeah. So where are we going to go back to in, in terms oh, of we we go go the to... history? Where are we going to go back to the history or, yeah, uh, let's go back. To... Let's, let's go back. Yeah, you, you take the stage. I, I think the history is really important and let's consider history right from the very beginning. Let's consider an ancestral diet and whether you believe in creation mythology, evolutionary theory or biblical creationism, you know, we had to eat to survive at the beginning. And the food that we ate tended to be hunter-gatherer foods because that was what was available, it's what we could access. And here in Australia, the um, Aboriginal peoples are a beautiful example. And Western A. Price, who was a dentist who travelled the world in the 1930s, he said that their physique and their ability to maintain their environment and respect their environment ensured their health and well-being and the health and well-being of the flora and the fauna that they used to survive on. So, you know, going all the way back, how did we look at our environment and how did we eat? We ate to survive. And then you had the agricultural revolution, then the industrial revolution, and there's some fascinating bits and pieces all the way through all of that as well. But, you know, right up to, I think, the... when they started to work out vitamins and minerals, when they worked out that we needed fats and carbohydrates and proteins and all sorts of bits and pieces was definitely in the 18th century, you know, 19th century, the 1800s, and and it grew from there. So if we take our posse all the way back to there, okay, well, where did these dietary and health guidelines come from? And I'm fascinated to learn that the very first dietary goals or recommendations were in the US and they came about in the 1800s. We all think 1977, that was, you know, the dietary guidelines, but 
the very first ones were by a guy called Will, Wilbur Atwater. And he determined them because he was trying to work out how people could, it was sort of more of along the home economics line because people weren't making all their foods anymore. They weren't making their butters. They weren't making these because suddenly they could purchase them. Mm-hmm. So he did a very big study trying to work out the economics of it all. And so this is where dietetics moved on from home economics. And you'd be fascinated to know that one of the very first dietitians in the world was a, na- a lady named Ella Eaton, and she married John Harvey Kellogg. She was a home economics teacher who came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium not long after John Harvey Kellogg had become a doctor there. And she met him and he was already trying to work on an experimental kitchen at the time. He was determined to try and make foods that would um, reduce basal passions, all sorts of things like that. He was a temperance reformer and looking at how to present bland foods to people so they didn't excite the passions. And when you look at the thing, so around that same time, the temperance movement were mostly concerned with just alcohol. But temperance health reformers went beyond that and they looked at alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and some of them were very concerned about meat. And I, meat? Why were they worried about meat? So John Harvey Kellogg was setting up this experimental kitchen to create meatless meals. He still used dairy. He was only bit for yogurt, fermented dairy he believed was okay, but everything else he was trying, he got rid of eggs, butter um, and meat out of the menu altogether. When he took over the Western Health Reform Institute and it became the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It was caring for about 40 people at the time and he grew it to a mega institution that would have 1,200 people a week. Like we're talking someone who was massively influential in the healthcare space and his wife stepped in just about the right time in the the 1870s to help him start up this experimental kitchen with his brother William Keith by the 18... 90s, they developed um, flaked corn, flaked wheat, you know, going along those things. But he was the one who developed the very first commercial meat alternative, and it was nuttos. Then he developed a legume, gooey, gelatinous legume in a can called protos. And he was also one of the very first people to talk about soy as human food. So I was thinking, well, this is really interesting. And you might think, well, how on earth did you get back to John Harvey Kellogg and sanitarium, his Battle Creek Sanitarium and all these, you know, when did health food not become animal proteins and fats anymore? When did it become processed food and plant food? Mm. When did this messaging come through? So I believe Ella Eaton Kellogg and John Harvey Kellogg sort of created this incredible um, kitchen, recipe books, education. They developed a dietetic education at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. They were educating doctors. They were, this was incredible what they were creating. And I thought, well, the reason I came to this research was, as I said, the expert witness in Gary's case worked for sanitarium. 
And here in Australia, Sanitarium Health Food Company is owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which I is, is minimal in the UK and in Australia, it has a very, very small footprint compared to the US and compared to the South Pacific and a lot of other countries, especially in Asia, um, a really, really small footprint. But we have sanitarium here, which, by the way, also provides the UK with up and go. And according to last year, I don't know if it's still the same, but the British swimming team, it was their drink, their sponsorship drink. Right. So, so that's coming. Is, is sanitarium like Kellogg's? Is that another? It is. So, so Kellogg's what happens company, was so Kellogg equivalent. Well, equivalent to Kellogg. So Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg was a devout Seventh Day Adventist. He grew up as a devout Seventh Day Adventist, and he left the church. Um, I think he must have been about in his late fifties when he finally left it in the early nineteen hundreds. But up until then all through making all these first things, working for them at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, he was a devout Seventh-day Adventist. And I hadn't realised, because as I say, Seventh-day Adventism is quite small in, in Australia, that they believe they've been taught by their prophetess, the founder of the church in 1863, that the God-appointed diet for man is fruits, grains, nuts and seeds. Those foods found in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Mm. And she has taught the church that when after the fall and after the flood, when man was presumably allowed to eat meat because there weren't very many plants around, that it they would also have to pay for that um, sinfulness of eating meat with shortened lives and disease. And that to get back to the Garden of Eden, the Seventh-day Adventist church, have their, their right arm is medical evangelism and their health reform message, which includes the diet, a really big part of their mantra is this diet or doctrines uh, is the diet, and they have to take that message to all the people in the world because if you read through some of her doctrines, she says that we won't be translated or they won't be translated, they won't have salvation until they give up meat so it's not a not a test of faith to eat meat but once you're within the church you have to try and work out how you can get rid of it and your message when you tell other people when you run cooking schools when you run all your educational things when you when you work in their hospitals and and provide that health education it's all about getting rid of meat and dairy without actually determining the main reasoning of that they want to make it all about health but if you go back to her original messaging of why she was determined that people should give up meat, and that was because she believed and she taught John Harvey Kellogg, he was only 12 years old when he first started working for her and her husband, and he was typesetting their pamphlets and their literature. He was 12 years old when he was typesetting a solemn appeal to mothers, and that was all about mothers deter deterring their children from masturbation. And they believed that meat caused masturbation. They believed it excited not only men, but women and children. And it was the most heinous sin known to man of that time. Mm. So he was 12, reading things like, you know, it's like putting a pistol to your heart and shooting yourself dead eating meat. You know, it caused yeah. decaying of the brain. It caused all sorts of terrible things. Well, that messaging is 
mellowed over time, but the the messaging about removing meat and dairy from food hasn't. Mm. And in 1940, 1930, 1940, there was a guy called Harry Miller who was a devout Seventh-day Adventist. He'd studied under Kellogg and he started a nutrition laboratory, the International Nutrition um, Laboratory or Nutrition Science, and he said science will prove, not disprove, divine inspiration. And they have worked really, really hard ever since then, ever since Ellen G. White and certainly John Harvey Kellogg and all of the food industries they've developed ever since to create foods that would take the place of meat, butter and eggs. If you look at sanitarium, so sorry, Ellen G. White came to Australia. So John Harvey Kellogg started all of this as, as an Adventist, but it wasn't owned by the church. His food industry was not owned by the church. In fact, his brother went off with the Kellogg's cornflakes model, but John Harvey Kellogg still had a lot of food products under his own different um, food industries that he created as well. But Kellogg's in particular was never owned by the church, but William Keith and John Harvey Kellogg had been devout Adventists and paid tithe. And so from the sales, a lot of money went to the church from their companies. But she came to Australia for 10 years in 1891 to 1900. And she set up the church, the um, schools. She set up the printing press here and she set up sanitarium. But this time the church was to own it. And I think as of 2018, they own 23 food industries worldwide and sanitarium is honestly the mothership of a lot of them they just have worked out how to run a very efficient food industry here and it happens to be based in australia and new zealand and they export a lot of foods out they have a lot of brands underneath them so while sanitarium has this wholesome whole grain warm fuzzy feeling about health and nutrition I mean, Sanitarium provides resources to our general practitioners here in Australia just with a click of a button and you get beautifully printed resources telling you to eat fruits, grains, nuts and seeds. And that's health, um, you know, minimal meat, minimal fish, minimal dairy. People don't know why. They've got no idea anymore. Nobody looks to see where this messaging has come from. And, and I think that's been the most fascinating part of my journey is just going, why are we being told this? Why have we suddenly got health food aisles in the middle of our supermarket when the health food is really on the outside? Mm. Where's the idea that organ meats that our grandparents would have grown up on are going to kill us, but all this processed food with sugar and polyunsaturated oils and whatever else in the middle aisle is health food? So that's been a real focus of my study as well after I got Gary, exon- <laughs> he was exonerated from all charges in 2018. So after I got him off all of that, then I went, I'm just fascinated by the whole concept still and, and who's writing these guidelines. Yeah, and we and it is big food. It is big food and, it's, and it is the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well. They actually produced a, a paper not long after Gary first spoke about my research in 2017, and it's called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet. They're proud of what they've done. So here it is, a publication in religion. You can look it up and, um, and it's incredible. So Joan Sabat, who co-authored that paper, he was on the US 2020 Dietary Guideline Committee 
determining how much saturated fat could be in our diet. He was pushing for zero. Yeah. So you know, this is, a, I would say, a perceived conflict of interest that is not appropriate to be on a dietary guideline panel determining that. I would think that the Seventh-day Adventist Church have studied vegetarian vegan diets for so long that they should be in there somewhere determining how you can best be healthy eating that sort of diet but they shouldn't be on a dietary guideline panel determining if we can eat animal proteins and fats because it goes against their belief like it's a belief system and and I think I I mentioned in my little bio to you when I was writing it up I said I'm not anti-religion I'm not anti-vegan or anti-vegetarian I'm pro-choice and I totally believe that a lot of people within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a lot of people who've been able to get themselves into writing guidelines, into sanitarium, into the health and well-being space, are doing it because they sincerely believe that this is the right thing. But they have got, in my mind, a perceived conflict of interest because they believe that fruit, nuts and seeds are the God-appointed diet for man and we should not be eating animal proteins and fats. Mm. And it's a belief system. It's an ideology that has come from a woman in the 1800s who had over 2,000 visions from God telling her this was what it should be. Yeah. And then when that cereal industry comes after my husband and doesn't just leave it as a quiet messaging but decides they're going to target someone who's suggesting maybe that carbohydrates aren't the best thing, the most healthiest thing in the world, then that that's a concern. Mm. And And if you think about it, we didn't get to where we are in the 1800s by eating grains. No. And, and, and they'll say processed grains. the agricultural revolution from that time, people got sicker. You know, we became too smart for ourselves. We, we worked out how to become more efficient by being lazy. And that has not done us well at all. We've become sicker ever since the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution and then the dietary guidelines, I just say, have made us even sicker. And when you look at how the Seventh-day Adventist church, there was a guy called Mervyn Harding in the 1940s who determined to do a PhD study on proving that vegetarian diets were healthy. And he went to Harvard University to Fred Stair. I don't know if you've heard of Frederick Stair. He was has been found by Kristen Kearns and Gary Taubes to have taken a lot of money from the sugar industry. In fact, the Harvard School of Public Health was literally bankrolled by the food industry. That's how it came into being. So can you imagine Fred Stare? Here he is trying to, public health messaging, minimise the harms of sugar and processed food. Mm -hmm. And he has someone from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a devout Adventist, wanting to demonise animal proteins and fats. And he goes, Oh my goodness, of course I'll do this, you know, PhD study, I'll supervise you. They started producing their research papers in 1953, 1954, and that went all the way to the US government. And they became part of the papers that were used to determine um, dietary guidelines going on. People in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, became, well, Kathleen Zolber became head of the American Dietetic Association. So we've got a whole group of people determined to change these guidelines and get rid of animal proteins and fats out of the diet, or at least say that a vegetarian vegan diet is safe and healthy and pushing processed grains, processed polyunsaturated oils. Like 
it, it's really concerning. I look at what's happening and what's moving into the South Pacific here in Australia, and they're trying to get rid of all the animal proteins and fats out of people's diet in the South Pacific with the highest complication diabetes rate in the world. Mm. Here is the same. Everything is now vegetarian, vegan. But a lot of it's advertising. come. Yeah, a lot of it's come from the food industry. And I would say specifically Coca-Cola because they founded or funded a lot of the research, certainly the cereal industry, Coca-Cola and the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I think, have a lot to answer for, for driving us into this space and then making a discussion about low-carbohydrate impossible. Yeah, because if you think about it, Kellogg's, if they if people stopped eating cereal, that would be massive both for the economy in America and and for them personally. So absolutely, they don't want that. They don't want that messaging out there. No, <laughs> and, and, and 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 it all boils down to being about sex. And at the very beginning, <laughs> it was about sex. Yeah. And and if you look back, even Pythagoras and Buddha and all of those Eastern religions as well, the the idea of um, transmigration of souls, the idea of non-violence, all of those things, but it was also about sexual purity. A lot of them, you know, a lot of them were saying that sex, you know, we, we need to get rid of sex. And I think the early temperance health reformers, Sylvester Graham and all of those people, they were definitely talking about anti-masturbation as well. So it's it's interesting how they interlock all the way through. But I, I've gone back and looked at different religions, you know, the fasting ideas about religions. I've looked at um, going all the way back, like the Jain religion would be the most strict in their dietary habits and they don't even harm a plant they won't pull up a potato or an onion or garlic because that would kill a plant they only the the ascetics only eat fallen fruit that it's gone to the ground already and or they they're given arms they only eat food that's cooked by somebody else and given to them so you can go like but they're not trying to get into the dietary guidelines and convert every single person into their belief system yeah and and that's the difference with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they are the second biggest educator in the world behind the Catholic Church. And if you look at the healthcare system, they own, I think, over 200 hospitals worldwide, but specifically they own 28 in Florida alone. You know, in America, their healthcare system is so pivotally based on the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what would they do without it? So it's fascinating to look at that in Australia we have one major hospital owned by the church here. We have one college and now it's a university college. So it's minimal here, but their influence around the world and certainly into South Pacific and third world countries um, is massive where they're, they're growing. And, and they are in the UK and they have been involved. I think my most controversial thing I've ever brought up and talked about was lifestyle medicine. And if you Google the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Lifestyle Medicine, you will get their, their um, articles stating that they want to be the leaders of lifestyle medicine in the world. You know, that's why you need to Google, just those two topics, and you'll get it. So while the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine have really been quite, felt quite threatened by some of the research that I've done, 
And again, I'm not taking away the guy who started the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He did it for the most sincere belief possible to improve the health outcomes of people. And unfortunately, it's an exclusive ideology. This idea that only plants, no saturated animal fats, no animal proteins are allowed in their sphere is, is really concerning. And while the British and the Australasian societies can say, well, we're not supporting that completely, we are looking at low carb, we include meat and we include dairy in our recommendations. If somebody sits the global lifestyle, what, global lifestyle medicine alliance or the lifestyle medicine global alliance board review or they sit the exams or they join the global group, they're coming under the influence of the Adventist church ideology and Coca-Cola who are writing all the exam papers who are doing all that basic thing back at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And so no matter what they say out in those two spaces and what they're teaching, if someone becomes a member, then they go back to that. They're running exams in 22 different countries around the world at the moment. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine was founded as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on the Seventh-day Adventist Loma Linda University campus in 2003. It was the very first lifestyle medicine association. And when the British society first formed, there were key people from the Seventh-day Adventist church, key people from Coca-Cola, food industry involved in that association. It's, it changed names and after they had a bit of an issue with um, Coca-Cola's Global Energy Balance Network in 2016. There was a little bit of a, ah, what have we done? So they changed their Global Alliance name and they changed the British Society name and they did a few different things to separate themselves a bit from all of that. They changed URLs and did all sorts of things. But the American College stayed the same and the Australasian one changed the URL but wasn't too far from where it was and a very similar group of people have stayed in that main leadership role. But Again, it was this, it was the expert witness from Gary's investigation that led me to, I say, Sanitarium, led me to Coca Cola. His wife actually works for Ilse, which was founded by Coca Cola in 1978. It's, it's the hub of research on nutrition for um, universities, for doctors, for nurses, for dietitians. They provide all this research for these um, associations, and it's and it's pretty much funded by the food, pharmaceutical, and originally the tobacco industries founded by Coca-Cola. So his wife works for Ilse, and he was a patron of the Lifestyle Medicine Association when I was doing all my research. So that's how I came to find all of this. And as I say, going back, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is based on Seventh-day Adventist ideology. Key people are still there. And I've written quite a few articles and things on my website if anyone's interested in finding out more about those and and I guess I've kept going because I just think this history and this information is just so important for people to start to understand who's writing the rule books mm. who's writing it's them not necessarily it's not necessarily <laughs> about health because no actually they don't they don't care they, they, they're thinking well, about profits they and if you some of them do care so the Seventh-day Adventist Church, even though they own food industry, they still care about health, but they're misguided. 
And then you've got the food industry who are out for profit. Absolutely. There's no denying that. So, yeah, I think it's it's a very rickety pillar that healthcare is sitting on. And health education, dietitians have been educated by the food industry. And I would say dietitians have been educated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church because if you look at the dietary guidelines in America, there was a guy called Reese Southern. He had done the most incredibly amazing referenced work showing all the dietitians that had worked right up through to the um, 2013 dietary guidelines and their influence, who was on the um, panels, who was part of vegetarian resource groups and everyone else. So, again, he was instrumental in making me really look hard to see what was happening in Australia and, and into America from that side. But he'd look at the dietetics. I was looking at the medicine side and starting to understand that this American College of Lifestyle Medicine are writing medical education and the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine are endorsing the LMED, the Lifestyle Medicine Education Collaborative, which has been written by Seventh-day Adventists and Coca-Cola. And they're endorsing and trying, getting, and trying to get it into our medical education right now here in Australia. Mm. And I'm just going, um, can anyone see this? Whoa, slow down because this is, this is not what we want. We've seen what 50 years of demonising saturated animal fats have done. Imagine if our next generation of medical students, our next generation of doctors, don't only fear cholesterol and fat, but they fear protein, animal protein as well. I mean, we're going to be, the next 50 years are going to be a disaster for health if we don't start to challenge who is creating these rule books, who's creating the guidelines, who's creating education for our dietitians and our doctors. But do you see it changing? Do you see anything? Well, I'm trying really hard. Coming in the- <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's, it's just you and maybe, you know, other people like us and in the low-carb world that are, trying to get word out there that I think saturated it is fat starting, isn't bad. Yeah, I think it is starting to change. I can honestly say uh, five years ago I would have said, oh, this is hopeless. But I would think that enough research is starting to come out from the Public Health Collaboration, which I know you're a part of, Jackie, and they're doing amazing mm-hmm. work, Sam Feltham. I think Verta Health in America, certainly Nina Teicholz with the Nutrition Coalition, mm-hmm is really raising a voice and getting a lot of incredible studies um, published recently, just really recently, um, on saturated fat, but also on sodium, on carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. I think that the di- the diabetes associations can't keep denying that low-carb can be a tool. And, I mean, that is, I've, I'm in the middle of writing an article. It's taken me a very long time, but I'm getting there. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine has done a Diabetes Bill of Rights, Type 2 Diabetes Bill of Rights, and it is an exclusive document saying only plants, low fat, high carb, and it's and to me it's bordering on um, because they're not acknowledging their conflict of interest, this is, an, this is an exclusive document that should be challenged. But we we just need to go okay well and and i will keep calling out what i'm seeing but i do think there's enough things coming into line now that the di- that the diabetes associations can't keep avoiding it and it will have to come into the guidelines somehow but how do they keep us out of other areas I'd, because it will impact it'll impact people's health it'll impact 
you know, in a good way, and it will reduce their need for medications and it will reduce uh, dependency on processed carbohydrates. So that's a real challenge. How does the food industry, how do guidelines alter and change? How do they make it harder for people? And I don't know if you read it. I saw something last week to say that there's some new study being done in Australia on type 2 diabetes and, and it's called the lower sugar study. You go, oh, this is awesome. But when you look it up, the lower sugar study is a pill to reduce the amount of sugar that gets absorbed into your body. Mm. It's not reducing sugar as, a, as an actual consideration. And so I think we've got to work out how to empower people, how to empower them to go, I can do this myself. I don't need to band-aid sick care. I don't need to become part of a medical tourist and be stuck in this system of taking tablets when I can reduce sugar, which is what Gary did. He said, I'm already taking 10 tablets or 12 at the time, I think. Why would I take another tablet? Why? He was introduced to the idea that metformin, people who were on metformin at the time when Gary was starting to look at low sugar, people who were on metformin were having reduced incidence of cancer or their cancers were going into remission. So our pharmacist who thinks outside the square and was great she just said why don't you think about maybe even going in onto metformin it just you know it just seems to be working gary said well let me have a look at what metformin does and it pushes sugar from the bloodstream into the tissues which really isn't a good thing but it gets it out of the bloodstream in the in the interim so wow that's fantastic so the blood results look good mm. but he said why would i do that when i could just reduce sugar and I think this is something people need to consider. Why do I do that if I can do something that's simpler? And as you know, Louise, Jackie, you can take sugar out of your diet and the world doesn't end. Your hair doesn't all fall out. <laughs> and I've got to grow thicker and curlier. <laughs> I think you can you can change your diet and it but it's the social aspects of it all. It's being supported by family, by friends. You know, you need to find a little click that can go, yeah, hey, you're doing the right thing here. Not, oh, my gosh, what the hell are you doing? Oh, I'm not going to sit with you because I can't have my dessert. I'll feel bad. You know, I, you know, how do we get around all those things to support people? I think that's the most important. And so my research is really challenging, challenging to me, challenging to lots of other people. But we have to consider the historical context and we have to understand who's writing the guidelines yeah. before we can say these guidelines don't make any sense because now we know they don't. Yeah. They're about protecting profits and a profit, yeah. which I'd never considered. <laughs> and, I, and also I think about the pharmaceutical industry where they, they're not advocating health. Do you know? They in, want people to be sick but yeah. not too sick that they die. The actual, sick enough yeah. to need the medication. The actual Sorry, GP diabetes guidelines in Australia, not the most recent one, the one previous, actually was sponsored by two pharmaceutical companies, of course. But 133 pages of, I think the first line said we need to consider lifestyle. And then the next 133 pages were band-aiding sick care, medicate, 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 and what do you do? And on page 134, there was one paragraph about maybe low-carb might help. Mm. Who's going to look up to page 134? The doctors are just going to, like, they're just getting brainwashed 
to medicate. And it's terrible. In 1910, there was a thing called the Flexner Report. And that went around and it was it was sponsored by Carnegie and Rockefeller because they wanted to use their oil in pharmaceuticals. It got rid of so many of the naturopathic um, univers- or colleges at the time that were teaching people to do other ways of healing and it made it that to be a medical school you had to conform and be part of this Flexner and that's 1910. Mm. Pharma got into medical education all the way back then. And 1917 was when the Adventist Church got into the Dietitians Association of Australia, sorry, the Dietitians Association of America because um, two of the people who founded it, including Lena Cooper, were working at the Battle Creek Sanitarium under John Harvey Kellogg and promoting the Garden of Eden diet. They founded the American Dietetic Association. So all all our medical students and all our dietitians are all being um, funded or taught by the pharmaceutical and food industry. Educated by the pharmaceutical and the food industry. And when you go to university, you believe what you're taught. And I, I sometimes say to Gary, I think some of the reasonings why I've been so abstract with some of my thoughts and gone down rabbit holes and found things that, and it wasn't that, I mean, Nina Teichels has done the most incredible research on the big fat surprise. You go, it's so incredible. And Gary Taubes and all these people, but they just didn't quite look at religion. And it was there all the time, right in front of them. It was just that one little missing piece. And, you know, we've heard of um, Senator McGovern and his dietary guidelines in 1977, 1978, but his committee, his um, right-hand man at the time was a guy called Nick Motton. He was a Seventh-day Adventist and he wrote the dietary goals in 1977. Mm. Senator McGovern's best, one of his best friends was Nathan Pritikin of the Pritikin diet. You might have heard of the low, the high-carb, low-fat diet that was all the rage back in the 70s, and Nathan Pritikin had like a, an actual hospice sort of thing. He used to take people in and, and, and look after them in that setting and give them a high-carb, low-fat diet. Well, he actually was an adjunct professor at Loma Linda University. He had read Ellen G. White's writings when he was at war, and he believed, I don't know if he ever became a Seventh-day Adventist, so I can't say he was or not, but I know for sure he was an adjunct professor at Loma Linda University and he helped train up a guy called Hans Deal. And Hans Deal has since gone on to create Sanitarium's CHIP program and the Complete Health Improvement Program by CHIP, which is also pushed at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. This CHIP program has on the facilitator guide at the very top, meat, eggs and dairy, the worst possible health outcomes, and they are topping the list and underneath them are alcohol, caffeine, and tobacco. Meat, eggs, and dairy are the worst possible health outcomes on this CHIP program. Hans Dill worked at the Nathan Pritikin Centre. But, you know, Senator McGovern had people who were believing in this low-fat, anti- or demonising saturated animal fats all around him. And the fact that Nick Motton wrote the first dietary goals, I think, you know, that's that's incredible. Yeah. And and I just looked at your eat 
eat healthy plate this morning, eat well plate. And I just eat went, well oh, my gosh, you know, when did we get rid of meat? Where did the meat go? <laughs> yeah. And and the thing is that these people are all part of the, well, in, Amer- in America it's not eat well plate, is it? It's, well, the health guidelines the food pyramid. Are, still, <laughs> are still funded by the people that work in these industries. Yes. And so It'll... anybody independent will not have any influence on on those health guidelines. And I know Nina Tyshots has been trying, but she still didn't succeed as much as they would have liked last year when they put out the new guidelines. No, I think she had found a couple that were supportive and weren't so involved in industry, but the majority of people she uncovered were involved in either industry or as I say, um, the Seventh-day Adventist was very high profile in that group as well, in that panel. We've just had our Australian panel of the NH and MRC Dietary Guidelines Review Committee announced two weeks ago and, you know, really searched hard and it, and it does appear that no one's specifically tied to industry, unlike the American one and unlike our previous dietary guidelines, which were fraught with industry, it does appear that maybe there's no one there, but seven of the 11 are dietitians and they've all been educated by the food industry. So again, you know, how, how far can they go when they have a belief system potentially that plants are healthy and animal proteins and fats aren't so healthy? So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see, but the fact that industry doesn't seem hugely represented as a right in front of our faces Hopefully that's a better thing, but it will be interesting to see. Mm. And, and you know, what's the public health collaboration up to at the moment? What what work are they doing? Well, they're still trying to educate. And uh, I don't know if you know, but Dr. Seema Holtra has just been um, nominated as chair of the PhD, ah, and he's fantastic speaking out a lot at, at the moment, and has been on TV and, um, but. If I don't know if it's still enough. It's probably not still enough. Well, fingers crossed it is. He's pretty loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and very outspoken. And mm-hmm. But will they manage to silence him? We don't know. You don't know. Hopefully, I say hopefully, enough people are starting to either take back their own health, but I think it's because health professionals are taking back their own health as well. Like how can you argue low carb down under here and there's sort of little branches now in all of the different states but there's a lot of health professionals who've gone you know what i followed the guidelines and i got sick the head of our ama he hasn't been really really loud about it but i'll put him under the bus he's gone low carb and lost a heap of weight and reversed his health issues um we haven't quite gotten him to speak at a low carb event yet but you know he's the head of the ama so certainly there's some key people now starting to understand the message and not fear it mm, yeah and that has to that has to bode well and not forgetting and not forgetting the 2020 australian of the ah, year dr james mukey james you know, mukey. the ophthalmologist mm. i know gosh i think they got a, a shock when he got up on that platform they gave him an award for being the ophthalmologist of the year in 2020 which was very clever <laughs> eyesight 2020 and then um he got there and said he wanted to talk about sugar and he hadn't mentioned it beforehand. So, yeah, he has been 
a powerhouse in talking and trying to advocate for low carb. Sometimes he, I know he gets very frustrated with the whole thing. Occasionally I'll get a message and he'll say, oh, did you realize this person or that thing? And But I think you know, he is he has the opportunity and he has done some amazing things here in Australia mm. and will continue to do so. And not forgetting we've had um, on the podcast um, Dr. Peter Brockner as well. Yep. So he's doing some great stuff with his um, his foundation, you know, Sugar by Half. And also and defeating when, diabetes now. He started defeating diabetes yes, with, with Paul Mason. Paul Mason, yeah. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's things that are happening in, I suppose, the Australian landscape that are, yes. that are very encouraging. And it's really interesting that you sort of you mentioned about the the Seventh Day Adventist because obviously it is um, you know even though it ha- you mentioned it has a small sort of footprint in Australia but it has a large reach you know that, through yes. the through through the sanitarium because obviously we grew up with obviously the wheat bix and <laughs> those sorts of things and how many wheat bix do you do exactly um, wheat bix kids those, aren't we <laughs> yeah absolutely. So it becomes quite synonymous, as you said, with the health washing and that message of, you know, purity. And uh, it was really interesting for me when I went to Geneva and obviously the Calvinistic notions. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned about the temperance sort of thing, but it's always about going without or you know, yes. abstaining, you know, that mm-hmm. we have to be pure in our thoughts and in our intentions. Yes. That it, it just makes it so challenging when animal protein tastes so delicious. How <laughs> well would you deny that? Well, not just delicious, um, but it's got everything in it. Like it is bioavailable. We can get all of our nutrients. And I think you know, it's fascinating that vitamin B12, even the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and can I just say, a lot of things that I put up, people start to take down. So my references don't always link to things anymore. But I promise you, in November last year, I checked and it was still there, but it is not there now. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church have got amazing resources for people who, if they want to do a vegetarian or vegan diets. And I would hardly recommend um, accessing them because they really are brilliant. And they say the only place you can get vitamin B12 is through animal proteins and fats. And even the seaweed and spirulina and different things that people have mentioned that maybe you can get a little bit, they, they say on their website, it's not bioavailable and you can't get enough. So you have to use a supplement. So it makes me wonder who patented the supplement for vitamin B12. But I won't go there. I'm just, I know a lot of their patents that they've done for lots of different things. And this is sanitarium. Sanitarium is involved in um, seed patents. They're involved in research. They sell um, patents for drugs, massive costs, all going through sanitarium. And because it's under the church's umbrella, they pay no tax on any of those things because it's a charity status. Um, yeah. you know, they've done a huge amount of research into stevia um, all the way from the seeds right through. They were part owners of the largest vertically and horizontally integrated stevia business in the world up until last year um, when I've been doing a lot of research. So, you know, it, their reach is massive, as you say. But on their resources, they, they stated why if a plant food, if fruits, grains, nuts and seeds are the God-appointed diet for man and you can't get vitamin B12 from that, well, why would that be the right 
um, diet. And in their explanation on their own website, they went on to say that maybe vitamin B12 had been in the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And when that tree of life was taken away from them after the fall, that's why they didn't have vitamin B12 anymore. But you didn't have to worry when you were in heaven. And when we go back to heaven, we won't have to worry about eating animal proteins or fats because we'll have the tree of life back again and be able to get our vitamin B12 from there. That's come down since November last year after I've spoken about it a couple of times. But they do have... This is metaphorically speaking. We're talking in metaphors. This is this is we're not talking literal. Please. This was literal. This was honestly what was there. Because that's what they believe. They see it's an apocalyptic church. They're praying for the end of the world. Yeah, They're course. wanting Jesus yeah, to come back and they want to go back to the Garden of Eden. They want eternity in the Garden of Eden. And if you look at the slides that were on the American College of Lifestyle Medicine for the first well, five years, I reckon, from 2003 to 2007, eight. They had slides up there by the guy who founded it, again, sincerely doing it to create health. He, in his mind, that was health. He had slides up there saying that it was lifestyle medicine in the Garden of Eden mm. when Adam and Eve ate fruits, nuts and seeds of what you could get there. Um, and you know, referencing the Bible, evidence-based, because it's the Bible is the evidence. Ellen G. White is the evidence. So if you look at all of the things evidence-based and you look on the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, evidence-based a million times over, it's because they believe that God is the author of science. And so anything that aligns with the Bible, I've got um, in a couple of my talks, I've got some links to a lot of that. But if you look at the people who wrote the board review, you look at the people who've written other bits and pieces, all of it comes back. Even the 15 physician core competencies were written by Seventh-day Adventists and then endorsed by the American College of Physicians and, uh, sorry, there's another couple of colleges that endorse them. But there were Seventh-day Adventists who were the key people in those colleges who then had endorsed the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's 15 physician core competencies. So it, it, it's all supported by each other because they believe medical evangelism is the right arm of the church. So they are intent on educating themselves in medicine, in dentistry, in dietetics, in nursing. You know, health is their mission. And that's, and I, I think I put up in a couple of talks recently that uh, actual screen grabs, and I've seen it over and over again through my research, that the health message is a way to get to people that you normally couldn't get to talk about religion. If you say we're going to set up a hospital in your remote community compared to we're going to come in with a whole lot of Bibles, they'll take the hospital any day. You know, they mm. go in there with the health message. And this is this evangelism is incredible. And um, Ellen G. White said that public health education was pretty much a doctrine of the church. They were to educate the people on public health and and then it became about food as well. And she said she set up sanitarium here in Australia. The health food business is to take the place, is to provide food that will take the place of meat, 
eggs, milk, and butter. Mm. And you know, it just you look seems at, it's incredible. It just seems that this is, as you said, it's like a, a Trojan horse. So the health mission or the health messaging is mm. the Trojan horse for that that evangelistic to grow the church agenda, exactly to grow the church right so yeah it it's quite duplicitous in a way that we you know under the guise of this messaging that this is the sort of intent to well, politicize which they've done mm. they've politicized and health washed by removing animal proteins and fats and replacing it with fruits, nuts and grains and seeds. Yeah, well, you look at the South Pacific Society of Lifestyle Medicine, the 10,000 Toes campaign, all of this thing that's going into the South Pacific. And, you know, this CHIP program that I told you about before and the facilitator guide that I found the page to to show about meat, eggs and milk with the worst possible health outcomes, um, meat, eggs and butter, sorry, when you look at, you know, They've taken that CHIP program and every doctor in Fiji has to learn the CHIP program. Now they're doing it into the Solomon Islands. So we've got a group of people who are taking their health message to an unsuspecting group of people who are struggling. And, yes, they're, you know, restricting um, calories may help people reduce weight and maybe getting rid of some of the junk food that they were eating because there's definitely stories of people losing weight and getting better eating it but you look at their recipes not a single animal protein fat and they are sugar and carb loaded and there's no way those people in the south pacific can eat those meals over and over again and not continue to have complications of their type 2 diabetes Mm. because they're massively high carb but it's not culturally sensitive either. And it's not culturally sensitive. The, it's not culturally appropriate and it's not culturally sensitive because wait, wait, in those islands, yeah, well, just, you know, coconut or pork or the yams, those sorts of things. Mm. That's, and fish. That would make more sense. And fish. They went into the oh Marshall my. Islands and took their diabetes program into the Marshall Islands and they told the Marshall Islander people who fished that they weren't allowed to eat fish as part of their defeating diabetes guideline thing. Okay, so so this is this is the concern. Um, and as I say, because it's all coming under this health umbrella, I I just think it needs to be spoken about. And again, it's it's not about individuals within that church. I respect anyone's right to to follow their own beliefs if that's what they choose to do. And as I say, the Jain people would be the strictest religion in their their um, diet but I met a, a Jane and she was gorgeous when we were at the CrossFit Games but she didn't tell me that I couldn't eat anything she chose not to eat but you know it's about respecting people's cultures people's environment people's beliefs and when it comes to my health I don't think, well, especially with Gary and everyone else, I don't think we have to compromise our health because of somebody's ideological belief. And in all fairness, with all of the research that I've done, Ellen G. White's visions from God that she claimed were all from him, came from him. There's a lot of people who question her um, mental capacities, um, question her plagiarism, which has been 
actually acknowledged by the church in the end that she plagiarized a lot of her work. You know, there's there's a lot of questions, and yet this church is growing and educating and providing health unbelievably, and especially in the US and, and into the South Pacific and third world countries. Um, again, the US, uh, the UK and Australia, not so big, but if they become our medical education. Yeah, that's scary. If they get their medical education to be part of it, what well, won't matter? They'll be, uh, our doctors will be evangelists for the church without even realizing it. Mm. And I wonder if there's some sort of power play here as well in that if people are not eating meat and they're not having these sexual urges, we sort of see, and I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but within the low-carb space, people are much more chilled. I know myself, I'm not as angry as I used to be. You're much more chilled, but also a lot less scared. And I wondered if promoting eating lots of grains is just keeping people scared and in a place of where they're not going to rise up and say, no, I, this doesn't work for me. So therefore we're very malleable and um, it's a really interesting the point, Jackie. The politicians can then have more control, and we're seeing it at the moment with all this COVID stuff, how we're forced into things. Bit and, of a fugue state. Um, yeah. Uh, but there's some of us that might stand up and say, no, I'm not going to take this. But if they're, if they're depressed and mm. not able to think for themselves, then that, that's a good place for them to think for us to be. Absolutely. And I think that some some of the early earlier religions believed that if you ate an animal, then you would get an animal instinct. Well, I've looked at cows. They're pretty calm to me. <laughs> it's not like I'm eating a lion and then getting lion ferocity. So, you know, cows and sheep don't look that aggressive. But the concept that, you know, you've eaten something that heats the blood compared to eating a plant that is less aggressive. But I, I agree. I think you look at Hitler. He was a vegetarian, if not a vegan, and he certainly wasn't placid. So, um, you know, I think it's about health. At the end of the day, it's about health. And if you can combine your health with what you eat that is appropriate for your culture, where you live, your environment, whatever else, it's got to be the best outcome. And I think mm. you were chatting to me before saying, you know, what are takeaways? Well, I think the biggest takeaway is eat for your health, don't fear fat, and you know, find a good group of people that you can talk to and debate things and and have a great conversation with that, that aren't afraid to question. And I think at, that's what you're sort of alluding to a little bit as well. You know, we should be able to challenge. Gary has a great meme that he's put up, you know, science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. Mm. And this is what's happened. Every scientific discovery was because someone thought, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to try something else. You know, it wasn't, we didn't just follow everyone else and do the same thing. So where's that scientific discovery going to come from if they dampen down everyone's questioning and they make everyone follow the rules? Yeah. Who's writing the rule books? Yeah. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So you've given us your 
top tips. Top tips. <laughs> How <laughs> giving you my top tips. <laughs> she, she snuck that in even yeah. before we said. Um, so, Belinda, give us your top tips. She's already snuck that in, but um, <laughs> yeah, Jackie's going to ask you uh, where can people certainly. You just remind us the I support Gary. What was the www.isupportgary.com. I haven't written any blogs for a little while because I've been so busy doing talks and writing talks. And I'm also, I'm in the process of starting a new website because Nina Tyshaws was just gorgeous. I just love her to bits. And she said to me, Belinda, I support Gary is sort of a bit like a cottage industry. You know, I can't really access and, and reference it because it just, you know, who's going to look at I love Gary? <laughs> so it's like, Ah, oh, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> so I'm in the process of starting BelindaFetke.com, but it's not up and going yet, but I'll certainly there'll be a notice somewhere. I'll let you know when it's up. But I'm also working with a couple of people. There's someone very interested in doing a documentary on my research, so I'm madly trying to really um, collaborate with him and and put the background into it as well. Like I, I need to have everything in place. I don't want to come out with this and look like I'm picking on anybody in particular this is the historic side of things and this is where we've come to purely from everything they've put up like it's it's sharing vested interests and ideology and and how it's all come together to target gary and demonize animal proteins and fats so hmm. i've been really busy working on all of those things and a bit caught up with um family things with our daughter and grandchildren moved home pre-COVID so we actually had seven living under our roof until February this year and um, <laughs> they're still around and I must admit I might only have them for a year or two more here in Tassie so I'm making the most of seeing and being with grandchildren which is pretty special so I'm not on my social media and my website a lot at the moment but it doesn't mean I promise you that I'm not working frantically behind the scenes and and getting together some really really interesting stuff to continue to put out in the next couple of months um and so i'm on facebook i actually took over gary's facebook page uh he was gary fecky no fructose so unfortunately i'm belinda fecky no fructose even though it's not really what i do um i did have to tell everyone when i took it over and he was silenced that i wasn't the scientific person after all but i would still try and put up some interesting information lots of other people were putting up so i've certainly shared some of sam feltham's public health collaboration work and um, Asim's work and a whole lot of other people. So I use that to share other people's work mostly. And um, I'm on, oh, I was on Twitter, but I've just logged off for a little minute because it takes a lot of time. Um, but yeah, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, probably LinkedIn. I think we just connected today, Jackie. LinkedIn, I find is a really fascinating uh, platform. I hadn't realized how powerful it could be in connecting and getting out a message in about low carb in that space. I think there's actually a lot of people in that business community who are interested in nutrition a lot more than I thought would be there. I mean, Instagram and Facebook come and go and you've got, got some amazing followers and amazing tribes in that space. But LinkedIn's a very interesting platform and well worth delving into. Yeah, I'm just starting to get into it mm. a bit more at the moment. Yeah. What we didn't talk about, yep. and I don't know how you're up for time. No, I'm okay. <laughs> is how it was for you when you were going through all this um, investigation with Gary and how was it for your family at that time? Um, I would say I actually wrote a, a blog, Don't Shoot the Messenger, 
And I'd watched Gary reverse his prediabetes, his high blood pressure, go into remission for his chemo, uh, for his cancer at the time. I'd watched him just get so excited and passionate about making changes for people's lives in our community. And he was running a group called Fezzy Fat Busters and he was doing different things and he was being interviewed on the radio. Just see, he was getting excited about medicine again. David Unwin's mentioned the same thing. A lot of others have too. How exciting it is to have options to actually empower people and help people get better rather than band-aiding sick care. And so uh, I was seeing this guy you know that I've been with for a very long time we've been together for over 40 years and I just seeing him just get a spark back and an excitement about medicine and he had to have a hip replaced and again it's from um lots of years of sport and I would say eating the wrong thing I was lucky I grew up in a family that meat and veg and butter and all of those things were just staples in our family where Gary's family ate a lot of take away and a lot of processed food and a lot of polyunsaturated oils and very, very high carb diet. And so it's taken its toll on his health and he would be the first one to admit that. So here he was the day before he was about to have his first hip replaced and he gets a message from the medical board to say he's being investigated for talking about reducing sugar. That's all it said, reducing sugar, nothing else. And I, and I just watched him lying in his bed and I just went, he does not deserve this. So I think at first it just came from a place of like deep anguish. Think, how can you possibly come after someone who's doing the right thing? He's not done anything wrong. His crime mm-hmm. was to talk about nutrition, talk about real food. And I, what the hell is wrong with this system if you can't? do that and get people off medication. Like people were coming off medication. This this has no place. What you're doing has no place. Then I became frustrated because I was sending, or we were sending, but I was getting screen grabs of this man working for sanitarium. And we sent it to the APRA medical board and they said, well, we've checked with him we don't believe you, we believe him. I was like, well, how can you believe him when I've got the things? Since that time, I've uncovered that he was working for Sanitarium in an advisory capacity on their Australasian Nutrition Advisory Council all the way through from 2000 to 2016. He was completely with Sanitarium tied up for 16 years right over Gary's entire investigation and the whole lot so it wasn't a one-off thing it wasn't something he just started he'd been hugely involved with them for a very long time so I was frustrated but I think the hardest thing was Gary was threatened with losing his medical license he was bullied in his workplace mobbed bullied he'd put in a picture of our cat for some thing at in theatre and they just had to bring in their favourite pet or whatever and he put it up and someone had drawn a dagger through our cat's kitten's stomach and put lolly wrappers all over it. So I think it sounds petty and and childish but when you start to add all these things up, he had his um, research projects taken away from him, he had his um, academic position at the university taken away so he couldn't teach medical students anymore. It just kept going and going and he refused to give up he just went 
what I, I'm standing up for what's right. I refuse to be silent on something that I believe will cause harm to my patients. I just had to stand, well, I worked it out. I didn't just stand behind him because I was actually a fairly quiet, shy person back in my previous life. I didn't just stand behind him but or beside him, but I actually took a step in front and I used my voice to give him his back. Mm. But I watched our family suffer. Like there were terrible, like there was a group called um, Blocked by Pete Evans on Facebook, but they were putting up our business details. They were putting up details about um, clients that were coming to Nutrition for Life. They were bagging out that. They were bagging out Gary. I mean, bagging out me. Our children were seeing these messages and these things. When I say children, grown adult children, but it was really distressing. And and when you think how much he had to go through, and we were even just speaking about it this morning, saying if it had been ten years earlier, we probably would have just walked away and just been downtrodden. But we were in a position where our children had all finished school. So if he had lost his medical license and he couldn't work anymore, we could actually go, well, he's young enough to go and find another job. He loves renovating houses. He loves doing other things. So we were able to stand up to these people and just go, we're not going to be bullied by you. We're going to take you on. But when I say take us on, we weren't allowed to have a lawyer. We weren't allowed, you know, there was no... There was no legal system we could use in this fight. It was just Gary and I against mm. Cyril Fabrecki and the medical board yeah. and probably the pharmaceutical industry who didn't want to know that type 2 diabetes could be reversed. Now, who knows what we're up against? But we didn't get, we did not stand down. We just kept going. And in fact, I think when I started my website, I support Gary just to put the little finger up at APRA. <laughs> that was probably, you know, then I just started putting up all my research. I went, well, if you're not going to listen to us, I'm just going to start putting it out there and making you look more and more stupid for not listening to anything. Gary had to do one face-to-face meeting with APRA in the two-and-a-half-year Star Chamber investigation. It was very different to Tim Noakes's. Tim Noakes's was out in public. It was, you know, they were able to record it. People were able to see this thing. Gary's was all done behind closed doors. And it was, they sent an email and Gary had to reply within two or three days. Like it was just, it was nonstop. And he would have sent them potentially a thesis worth of material. And he'd highlighted everything, just showing low carb, low carb, the research that I'm finding, the sugar, this everything. He just kept sending it to them. And so on the, just before they made their final determination, they said he had one opportunity to talk to them in person. Everything else had been done remotely. So we drove down there and it was, he was told he had 30 minutes to speak. And so, and it was a monologue, no questions, nothing. He just had to create this speech to them. When he went into the room, they said, you've got 25 minutes. And he said, but you told me I had half an hour. And they said, you've got 25 minutes. So they're trying to undercut and put you off right from the start. So then he had to try and on the spot work out which bit he wasn't going to discuss. And the only question they asked at the end of his 25 minutes of just sitting there staring at him while he made his monologue um, was, so if you were to tell someone to reduce sugar, would you consider that specific medical advice? And Gary said, well, I couldn't lie. So he said, yes. The only question they asked. Mm. And two weeks later, he was, he was um, 
sanctioned and he was told he was never allowed to speak about nutrition. It was lifelong and non-appellable in any court of law. They just made the rule. You can't do this. And go, I'm not going to do that. So as say, Louise knows, he went offshore for a while. He spoke about nutrition out of Australia. I took over his Facebook page so he wasn't on social media, um, but he refused to not tell his patients. And then he just got braver and braver and just went, you know what, they've got no right. They've got no right to stop me from telling people to improve their health. And so in two, I think it took us maybe two years, we were able to contact um, the health ombudsman here. And so the only way we could overturn Gary's um, case was to say that the process was flawed. So it took two years for her and she finally sent the case to another state and that state took, I think, seven or eight days to throw the entire thing out. And then Gary got a written apology from APRA. So it was, mm. it was a vendetta. It, you know, it was, I would say, a vexatious notification and a vexatious allegation and a vexatious investigation. And it all tied up. And so who was on that medical board? But the interesting thing was, and again, look, it takes a while for all the pieces to come together and to think about things. But incredibly, I worked out that the APRA medical board didn't put dietetics under their umbrella because it was too expensive. It was, too, it was going to cost too much and dietetics was considered too low a risk to warrant that cost. So Gary was investigated for two and a half years for something that wasn't even under the scope of APRA and deemed too low a risk to public health. It makes no sense. Just, so I just started pointing all this out. I just kept putting more and more and more up. And so I would think part of, I'm hoping, part of the reason he got off as well was because I just got loud and just went, this isn't good enough. He, he refused to stop. I just got louder. <laughs> and um, we made the whole thing look like just a farce. And I don't think the medical board were very happy about that either. Mm. But it was. It was ridiculous. It was interesting when we spoke to Tim Noakes and he talks about, you know, still perhaps potentially or does have, you know, like this post-traumatic stress, you know, that you mm. think that um, this sort of legacy, um, yeah, this legacy of those allegations, the accusations, all that sort of stuff is obviously, you know, this acute, stressful, chronic it was years of hugely stressful. Hugely stressful. But I don't think either of us have come away with um, that Gary's, Gary's grandmother stood up in Nazi Germany on a table as a Jewess and denounced Hitler. So Gary comes from a family of social justice and I would think as much as anything that he would stand up again and do it all again. Um, it's, it's something that he's very, been very, very passionate about and he's excited going forward, potentially working within the animal agricultural sector and demystifying the, the fear of animal proteins and fats, working into that space more and more. Um, I, 
there were definitely times when we were both overwhelmed, usually one or the other. So the other one was there to pick the other one up. But I think because our research just, I mean, Gary researched the biochemistry till he's blue in the face. I researched the other thing. But we've, and we've been together 40 years. We've talked about everything. He knows so much of my research. He couldn't quite name it. Like I can just flow off the tongue and quite be as much, but he knows so much. And I know so much in my past life. I was a nurse, so I understand some of the medical side of it and can certainly understand and comprehend the things that he's talking about. And low carb just makes total sense. But I think we were just so there for each other. I think a lot of other people, when I've looked, and it's not that um, uh, Tim's wife wasn't there for him 100%, but I think because we just both became very public and we got to do this together, um, I don't know, I think it just strengthened everything. So I don't think we've either of us have come away particularly like we're more just fired up, just going, how can we help others? And I think that's been the thing that Gary was unexpecting, was not expecting, was um, he's contacted nearly every single week by someone either under the clutches of, um, of APRA with a vexatious allegation or someone wanting to talk about nutrition and nervous and concerned about it. Um, he has supported so many people on the sidelines. And so I think he feels that the whole experience he learned so much and and we've met so many incredible people and it's given him back his health. So I think there's too many things that were positive and the bit just in the middle, we just both went, oh, let's just, let's just take them on. And I think that gave us a lot of strength just going, we're not going to sit here and take this, we're going to fight mm-hmm. back. I think there's a lot of people in the world who – look to you to you as a couple and um to tim noakes and say thank you for doing that (laughs) because both being overturned and i think that's given other people hope and absolutely a a sort of sense of relief to be able to go ahead and and talk about it yeah i i agree and it was it was a monumental thing at the time as i say uh, our kids we ended up just saying to them look just don't look at social media don't do this you know, we've got it. We've got it covered. Just leave us. <laughs> We're fine. And when I say that, um, our eldest daughter was because we opened Nutrition for Life. Or Gary opened Nutrition for Life for a while. We had dietetics, dietitians, nutritionists, uh, diabetes educator. It was an amazing little thing. And thank goodness the team. We gave it to the team for a dollar in 2018 because Apparatus would not leave us alone about it and just going to keep harassing Gary. So he. We gave it to the team and they've continued on in a smaller capacity but still doing some amazing things in our community and certainly somewhere that Gary was able to refer patients to also, which is fantastic. But we did, so our kids got involved with creating resources for Nutrition for Life and creating recipe cards and doing all sorts of bits and pieces as well. So, yeah, I just think it became a family thing that we went, we're up against the odds here, but we, we're going to make the best of this and we're going to keep helping people. And I think at the end of the day, what we got out of it was a lot more than we were given, even though APRA tried to give us a hell of a lot, even though Cyril Fabrecki tried to take us down. We saw people's lives improve and you can't, you can't take that away from anyone. Can't unsee it. 
You can't see the, it. The, see it, Love that's it. right. But I think it's when, when Aussies have their backs to the wall, that's when we come out fighting and I think it's just that tenacity. <laughs> I think it is. Um, you know, that whole digger spirit, you know, we're in the trenches. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but thank you, mm. Belinda, for supporting Gary. You know, I think that that's been, You're welcome. As, as Jackie said, you know, one of the shining lights of the resilience. And I think that connects with your top tip about finding community, that when we connect these like-mindedness, um, the spirit and the sense of, you know, our vision, maybe the correct vision, not the 200 and whatever visions from Ellen G. White. <laughs> 2000. But, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, that the, the fact is that I make light of the fact behind every good man is an even better woman. But, you know, you're the one woman that obviously was there alongside giving, as you said, Gary's voice back to him. And we yeah. thank you for, for that clarity of the one vision. Um, but I also, I don't think so. I could have done it without meeting people like you, Louise, and the public health collaboration. I haven't met you, Jackie, but now I have. But, you know, I think this community gave us incredible support and in, I think encouraged us to go out and do something, but they were just there and getting their lives back together too. So how could you not keep fighting? So thank you for being part of our journey, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, it's great to see You're you welcome. again. And if if anyone's actually in in Hobart, Tasmania, Launceston. I highly recommend the. Oh, well, I know Hobart. you're in Launceston, oh, but I'm just saying in Hobart, um, the one best thing about that was the curry scallop um, in in Salamanca Market. So I highly recommend curry scallops. <laughs> that Salamanca sounds Market. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's amazing paddock to plate everywhere here in Tasmania. Um, we're very, very lucky. So look up, look up a good food guide, and you'll be, you'll be blessed. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thanks, Belinda. All right, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. If this was an episode of Panorama, or in Australia or the US, you know, on sixty minutes, what would the headline be for this explosive revelation? uncovering corporate interests serial killers serial killers jackie <laughs> now we know there's a film called serial killers but you know that's what they're doing aren't they serial killing or killing with serials they are killing with serial and it's it's interesting how belinda through her really taking the spotlight off of Gary and really getting getting the attention away from him so he could obviously deal with the, the procedures, was able to re take this historical deep dive and uncover, as she said, you know, these interests, these corporate interests, which have been quite pervasive and somewhat sinister in finding its way into health and medical education curriculum because yeah. it's now it's just infinitum, you know, this perpetuation um, of being integrated into institutions such as universities as well as obviously the pharmaceuticals, the bodies, doctor, doctor the professional training. bodies. Nutri nutritionist, yeah, nutritionist yeah, training. Tra 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 training, yeah. And... 
this is this is the thing where it's embedded into these institutions, and once it's embedded, it's obviously hard to unbed yep. this. But we're never going to see that headline or any headline like it. You know, X is revealed in this. You know, I don't know what what, what it might say, but we're never going to see that because there is so much money behind the food industry, the cola industry the um, pharmaceutical industry that are not going to allow this to happen. And I think it's, you know, there's so much financial interest and we need to be, we need to think critically and not just follow. I I love this quote that Zoe Harkham said um, when she came on, uh, that's episode five. She said, don't be a sheep because the sheep end up on your plate and you eat it. And and it's it's very reminiscent to me of what's going on, you know, with the pandemic. And we're not going to get into that because that is also a very political thing, and every very um, everybody has their particular views. But I think we need to be aware of the narrative that we're being fed in all all aspects of pharmaceutical, food, health, um, even COVID, and just say. Is this really the truth or is there some financial backing going in behind it to um, push push an agenda? And as we always say, follow the money. I, I really want to take your point about being a critical consumer. I think that that's really, that's, a, that's one of the key messages. And I think it also gets to things that you always are sort of saying about your advocacy role, that it, it is that grassroots level. And it really has to be that being a critical consumer through empowering ourselves. And as you said, being critical of the narrative and being critical of the interests. But what we can do is to participate. So this is where you're, you, yours are talking about the grassroots action that we can advocate not only for ourselves, but through our obviously networks such as the PHC or the Nutrition Network, um, the Nutrition Coalition, that there are active community based groups that, you know, together we can start to mobilize and be um, raising awareness and really advocating you know, support for change. And this is sort of the policy change that we heard from um, Nick Norowitz, you know, and he was saying, you know, that we have these guidelines. So we have these standards of care. So we're starting to join the dots slowly, um, you know, with obviously what our guests, the messaging from our guests, that we can actually see how being a critical consumer is part of being personal empowerment through the community actions you know we can lobby for change you know as you keep on saying it's got to be community it's got to be bottom up you know we're not going to see it top down it's got to be bottom up that was you know and really raising awareness yeah that was dan grief who said nothing ever changes from the top down it has to come from the bottom up but Mm. you know we've been talking about grassroots for years we 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 know that it's it's got to come Um, and luckily we're starting, you know, we've seen on this podcast so many doctors and, you know, I think that is so great that we're seeing all these doctors that are coming out because they're, they're probably a tiny percentage of the doctors of, that are around. But we're seeing the shift because if they are advocating this way of eating, whether it's low carb or keto, you don't have to be as extreme as keto. Um 
I think people will start to believe it. So we're starting with the doctors and um, we haven't had the episode aired yet, but we've got one coming up with Susie Edge, who who just got tired of trying to push this low carb agenda that she just left the profession. And there, there's probably lots of other um, medical doctors that have done that because they don't want to push the agenda that's making people sicker. But on on the flip side of that, you know, we'll be looking forward to hearing from other doctors who, you know, are committed, you know, that can see obviously in, in their careers that the change is obviously slow, slowly um, evolving. And that's obviously, you can understand Susie's sort of frustration and, and people will hear that, you know, in the forthcoming episode. So we can sort of, you know, be able to compare and contrast um, where people put their energies so that's that'll be something that we can look forward to. Yeah. But we want to thank Belinda for taking the spotlight. You know, that's absolutely wonderful how she bravely took on, you know, to take the take that spotlight in quite an intense and personally challenging spotlight it was. But that what she's uncovered is really obviously finding truth and we're putting truth in the um in inverted commas here around the corporate interests and, you know, we really encourage people to be those critical consumers of all things, um, the narratives in the media as well as, you know, being criti- yeah, critical consumers of messaging. Yeah. And I wish we could have more people like Belinda or just get Belinda's word out even more so that mm. everybody knows about it. That's what we need to do. If you listeners know anyone, you can just share this episode with them. Where can we find the show notes for this episode? So the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero five eight. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish can you recommend a guest we can interview if you can click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation would you like to join our facebook group search for fabulously keto on facebook our facebook page is called fabulously keto and you can follow us there or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories.
and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>